Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so. Uh, And follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Jessica Scharzer. Hi. Thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Um, We spoke once before. Yes, we did. Uh, You were in the room on the American Horror Story. I was there when? Season 2? Is that when I came by? Or three, maybe? It might have been three. It might have been three. Yeah. Um, and that was uh, a very interesting conversation yes. to be had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can talk about some of that, um, although it's, it's sort of been well covered on the show. Um, but you are, you are the screenwriter of the new film Nerve. I am. Which people love. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> this is what I'm led to understand. Yeah. I, I mean, yes, actually, the, the exit scores have been very good. So that's sort of what I'm... You know, keeping my eye on, and I'm glad people like it. Does that stuff, I mean, I don't know how involved you were in this process, and we can talk about that a little bit, but does does that stuff matter to you? Does that affect you? Well, it's interesting. I mean, everything affects you, obviously. And, you know, I can't help myself but read all the reviews, and, you know, which are very all over the place. Um, <laughs> which they're going to be for everything, right? True. Like, you're going to get... Exactly. Wildly differing opinions. Yes. I mean, there are some movies that are universally loved, but most have mixed reactions. Um, But it's been really interesting reading the reactions because they were conversations we had in the development about tone, about the dares, about pacing, about, you know, whether authorities should, you know, be involved or not in the storytelling, um, what the role of the parents was and um, and these were, it's just interesting to see it on the flip side, having had all of those conversations, you know, ad nauseum for several years while we were in development. So, you know, I actually am interested and I have to just kind of toughen myself up to read them because they're hard. They're, sure. you know. Um, what was your involvement in this? I mean, was <clears> it was it written for somebody? Was it something that you pitched or that was pitched to you? How did, how did you even get involved with this movie? I had a general meeting with Ali Shermer, who's the producer, and um, it was off of a thriller I had written on spec. Mm-hmm. And um, she liked it, and she said, I have this book called Nerve. It's based on a first novel by Jean Ryan. And um, she said, I have this book set up at Lionsgate, and it's an amazing idea for um, a movie and a potential franchise. And um, read it, you know? So that's how it began. I read the book. I saw exactly what she saw in it, which is, um, you know, an opportunity to do something that was very of the moment and that was fun, but also had something to say about where we're at with, you know, the Internet and um, social media 
and our addiction to our phones and all of those things that that felt very relevant and ironically are going to very quickly feel out of date. I mean, Hmm. you know, trying to be of the moment, you realize, you know, a year from now, people are going to be laughing at some of the technology in the movie because we're going to move past that point. You know, it's it's all evolving so quickly. So how do you write around that? I mean, you know, the novel is one thing. Right. But when you're putting that in a movie when it's something that people are going to see when it's visual. Yeah. You know, how do you how do you make it about the theme and not about the tools of that that are right. serving the theme? Well, the biggest thing we said in the pitch um that I hope survives in the finished product is we said this is a movie about what is real nerve. You know, what does that mean? Hmm. And in the game, nerve means sort of how far will you go to win? How far will you go to stay on top, to have the most viewers, um, the most likes, so to speak? And um, how much money will you win? So it's it's very, um, you know, literally interpreted in the game in a very um, sort of uh, easy to understand mm-hmm. formula, right? But what we were talking about was, you know, what real nerve is, is standing apart from the collective and doing the unpopular thing and being willing to be unlikable and, and being willing to lose the game and, and all of those things. Um, and not just lose the game that they're playing within the movie, but, but lose the bigger game. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you willing to sacrifice to do the right thing? And that was the, the big idea that we had that was the subtext, you know, of mm-hmm. the movie. And um, that was something that resonated with me and uh we just we wanted to make a fun movie and have that that sort of bed of truth underneath it that hopefully was a bigger truth than just the technology and the tools right that's the way in right to to explore this idea is you've written a number of films that have been produced which is huge right Uh, (laughs) i'm sure you've written even more on top of those many more (laughs) um on a feature is that thematic hook your way in you know i know in tv it's very often about a character right uh but in a feature is it usually a theme or an idea that that hooks you in i mean to me whether it's tv or movies theme is always you know if not the first conversation the most important conversation Mm -hmm. to get to and a lot of times i don't even get there until the second draft and once i figure out what that thing is i will go back and rewrite a movie around this sort of new idea But um, I think it's critically important because, you know, it's easy to get lost in plot and how to navigate whether somebody's going to do this or that. If you don't have a rudder, um, it's hard to know which is the right choice. Whereas if you have a theme that you're working toward or reverberating against, it can help you make those choices. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting to hear, though, that you might not discover that till a second draft. It's true. So what does that first draft look like? Well, a lot of times the first draft is about laying out the plot. And Mm -hmm. usually, look, ideally you find that theme before you sit down to write because you save yourself a lot of time. Right. Um, But sometimes it takes an outside eye to read it and and say, you know what this movie's really about? And then, of course, that's always shocking to hear from somebody else. And then it either rings true or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, But... uh, yeah, I've had that experience before. Now I sort of seek out plot actively and try to find it before I start writing. <laughs> Which it saves me like a, a lot idea. of headache. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it seems like a few of the things you've done are based on other material. Right. Which most, at least most helps of the plot things. Wise. Yeah. 
Um, so when you're when you're looking to, I mean, and we can use Nerf as an example. When you're looking to adapt a book, and you say this is a theme I want to talk about, this is interesting to me. How do you start to translate that into you know a film language? Right. What does your process look like? Right. Well, first, if I'm building on a book, I always read the book many times, but I also outline the book. So I hmm. look at it in terms of scenes, that if you were to make the literal one-to-one translation of this book into a movie, and sometimes it's you know, 200 scenes, because yeah. obviously a book has more material. And do you actually sit and write that I literally out? sit and write it out. engineer it. That's I do. really interesting. I do. And, and I have that roadmap so that if I'm... So that when I abandon the book, which I inevitably do, so I'll, I'll map out the book, and then I will um, start to make stars next to scenes that I know I want to have in the movie, mm-hmm. and I'll look at just that list, and then I'll start, uh, and then I'll build an outline off of that list, and inevitably those scenes will find their way into the movie, but then there'll be an equal number of scenes that I write that are the glue that holds all those scenes together and that tells a dramatic story because what I found with adapting novels is a lot of times um, there's not a dramatic structure. There's not like an inherent dramatic structure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I made a, a movie about a girl who doesn't speak and in a novel you can have this entire interior monologue going for an entire book that gives you her blow-by-blow experience, right? But uh, on film, that's, you know, you have to find a way to translate. Yeah, and I actually, I specifically wanted to ask about that. Yeah. Uh, the movie is Speak. Right. Um, and this was how, how, it was a few years ago. 2003, right? so more than a few. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. it, honestly, it feels like so fresh yeah. oh, that, good. that I saw it uh, because it, it stays with you. It's a, yeah. it's a really good movie. Thank you. Um, but it is, I mean, the book is all interior. Right. So how... Can you talk about dramatizing? I mean, right. I guess that's what right. the job is, right? Right. Well, I remember a writing teacher I had at NYU um, said that um, he said he said writing is writing a screenplay is about elevating psychology to the level of behavior, right? Hmm. Which, which I that, always hey, we need to let people sit with that. For a second. <laughs> that is the smartest okay, so thing I, that's been said. So on I need, this I podcast. need to say, this is a, a teacher of mine named Bill <laughs> Riley from NYU who has passed away, and he was a fantastic teacher. And um, this was one of the nuggets that you know he that's left great. me with. But um, yes, and so really, you know, if you have a character who's in torment of some kind or whatever they're experiencing, you have to find the behavior that actually relays that to the audience, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, finding the behaviors, um, which are sometimes the opposite of a behavior. It's Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, a retreating. And this was a character who was depressed and who retreated. And actually one of the, um, you know, we were, we were struggling to get this movie made and even though it was a million dollar budget, um, it it still was teetering on, on the brink, you know, it was blinking green light. And I was a first-time director, so, you know, I wasn't a proven quantity at all. And um, I wrote a letter to um, the head of Showtime at the time to, to push the, you know, hmm. to, to push it over into the green. And one of the things I said was, you know, this movie appears to be a movie about rape, which in many ways it is, but it's actually equally a movie about depression. Hmm. And it's really hard to make a movie about depression because when characters are depressed, they retreat from other people, they retreat from life, they That's retreat right. from activity. It feels, it can feel inactive. It can feel very inactive. And um, that movie was particularly challenging. And just one other thing that was really interesting that happened with that movie was we had a ton of voiceover that we recorded and put in the movie. 
And we sent the the cut to Sundance, and they screened it, and they called us, and they said, we like the movie, we want to program it, but we really think you should pull out half the voiceover, because her performance is so strong and powerful, and the voiceover's ruining it. This is about a girl who doesn't speak, and now you've got wall-to-wall voiceover, and it just ruins the effect, and you don't need it. And we knew we didn't need it, because we had been watching it in editing room with no voiceover for weeks, you know, so we knew how strong the performance was. We added it more or less as an afterthought. Was it not in the original script? It was in the original script in a limited way, mm-hmm. but it was we added more than was even in the script. Interesting. Um, and we pulled half of it out at the sort of suggestion of Sundance, so it was actually a sort of a beautiful thing where um, a festival weighed in creatively, and we responded to it, and mm-hmm. we pulled it out. That's really interesting. Back to Speak. Right. Um, I'm curious about Writing and directing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if this is to you, what different muscles these are and how much of it is just means to tell the story. But, you know, obviously it's it's using different skills. So, right. so what was that for you specifically on that film? Right. Well, to me, um, you're always writing, whether you're writing, directing or editing, that mm-hmm. they're all a version of writing because you're creating something, you're telling a story, you're pacing a story, you know, all of it is uh, the same thing, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Um, and and that was actually the way we were taught at NYU. It was a, a program in which everyone was a director, even people who knew they were going to end up in cinematography or producing or editing. We all did everything. Mm-hmm. And so there was a real sense that it was um, an organic process where one skill flows naturally into the next. That's obviously not how it is in the real world and in the business where editors are editors and directors are directors. And actually that's been really challenging for me because writing for other directors, I'm constantly sort of surprised by, oh, uh, that was that was so not how I heard that line of dialogue in my head, or that was so not how I pictured that character. And these are all choices, right? And um, so, let's see, in terms of writing and directing, I mean, in my in my th- in my view, I'm directing the movie in my head when I write it. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to, a lot of times I'll, I'll say the dialogue out loud because I'm trying to sort of hear it and I'm trying to check the pacing of it um, and um, the flow of things. Um, so I don't see a real distinction between mm-hmm. those two things, even though clearly um, they involve completely different tasks. And directing is a very social act, whereas writing can be a very solitary sure, act. So. Sure, especially in features. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious to know, and just to, to dig a little deeper on, on something you said, you know, as a writer and, and handing your script over to a director. Right. And then hearing dialogue performed in a way that maybe you didn't intend, whether, you know, good or bad. Right. I want to ask not so much about director proofing your script, but how can we make sure as writers that our intention is on the page? Right. You know, this is a a deep process question. Well, you know, I'm one of those nerds who reads every book ever written about writing and um, takes every class and uh, listens to every podcast. And I'm one of those people who never sort of stops um, learning. And so... Um, you know, early on when I started writing, I read all of these David Mamet books, mm-hmm. which I thought were incredible. And, you know, he is very 
strict about only putting down on the page what you can actually film. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he avoids anything that has to do with the sort of interior life of the character. And um, it's all about behavior, you know, speaking about behavior. Um, what, what can I film? And mm -hmm. if I can't film it, I can't write it on the page. And there's a kind of rigor to that that I really respected. And so for, for many years, I would never write anything that had to do with feelings on a page. Um, and what I noticed, especially in TV, where things get made so quickly, it was actually really important to put that stuff on the page for both the actor and the director because things are moving so fast that you know you can miss the subtleties of things right so um if you want there to be an undercurrent in a scene where they're talking about something that's relatively mundane but what's really going on is a marriage is falling apart or something along those lines right. you really do want to write in that internal um struggle so that the actor and the directors know that's that's important sure you know so i actually do a lot more of that now than i did early on i'll mm -hmm. put that stuff in there well, that's interesting. And do you write differently for something that you're directing or that you know you're going to direct? No. I mean, I haven't directed in a, in a number of years. Right. But if I were to sit down and write a script now that I know I'm directing, I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't cut out any of those steps. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't. I know there are directors who ha write it in a shorthand because they know exactly how, what they're going to do with it. But my feeling is, you know, the script is a blueprint not just for you, but for all of the creative people involved, all of the yeah. actors involved, all of the executives involved. There's a lot of people on your team who are queuing off of a script, including, you know, the costume designer. Um, you know, one of the things on Speak that was uh, really moving to me was uh, the costume designer I hired on that came in and said, the one thing I can tell you is she shouldn't just be wearing black just because she's <laughs> depressed. And everybody else, that was sort of like a knee-jerk instinct. Sure. And she actually brought in an entire color palette that changed over the course of the movie. Hmm. Um, and it was a very subtle way to cue the audience, but it's a way to tell a story in the in the dress, right? Absolutely. And I, would, I didn't think of that when I was writing it because I was paying attention to the more obvious, you know, cues, but she looks at everything in terms of clothes. And so she was telling the story visually in terms of the clothing. And I really realized how important, um, those creative key people you hire are that they are telling the story in their department mm -hmm. and they're retelling your story in their department. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm curious to hear how, when you're working on a feature, the script changes as those departments become involved. I mean, there's a version of the script that you write to sell, right? right. Or to get it through the early stages of the process. Right. And there's a version of the script that gets shot and there are changes and things. So, I mean, it's all technical stuff, but I'm curious to hear about it. Right. Well, it really depends on what the project is and what the scope of it is, right? Mm -hmm. So with Nerve, I mean, with uh, Speak, what was beautiful for me about it as a first-time director was we were we had a lot of freedom. And so if something wasn't working on the set, we actually could change it then and there without having to run it through a gauntlet of, of mm -hmm. permissions. Um, there really weren't any executives on the set, and wow. there was barely any producers on the set. It was really just... It was really just me um, and the That's team. And, and and there was a lot of freedom there. And, and so, you know, for better and for worse, like you're making these decisions on the fly and you're solving problems on the fly. And um, 
you know, one of the things that happened was my lead actress was allergic to the grass and we had a big scene that was in the grass and we rewrote it for a car and it changed everything about the scene. Mm -hmm. But that was a necessity, you know, that was born out of necessity. And um, those are the kind of things that happen in production, the rewrites that happen because you just need to. But how much notice do you have on something like that? I mean, it happened literally in the moment. So she had this allergic reaction to the grass, (laughs) was in the hospital, and the next day we were rewriting scenes. And, you know, you do it. We had 21 days to shoot. So there wasn't a lot of time to rethink anything. Yeah. Um, Same thing with, uh, we just filmed Dirty Dancing down in North Carolina. And there's the opening scene where the family is driving up to Kellerman's. And um, it happened to be raining that day. So, you know, it was supposed to be this beautiful sunny day. What are you going to do? And it was the last day of shooting, so we couldn't wait. And so we wrote in some dialogue to acknowledge that it's raining. Mm-hmm. And it was literally, it's a, you know, two lines of dialogue. But if that's what's happening in the world, that's what's happening in your movie. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I'm curious to hear, let's, let's talk about some of the, you know, secret origin stuff for a second. Um, right. Did you always know that this is what you wanted to do? Were you always a writer? I was always a writer. Um, mm-hmm. my, my mother takes credit for that. Um, Why? My mother takes credit for it. It's pretty funny. Um, she, because she, when I was a little girl and I would get angry, she would have me write her hate mail. Um, <laughs> and great. so I started out writing these really angry letters that I would slip under her door about how idea. angry I was and how much I hated her. And, I hope she um, still has those. You know, somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> and, you know, so she pats herself on the back that she made me a writer. And, mm-hmm. you know, there you go. Um, and... Uh, and I always wrote different things. So, you know, for my teen angst years, I was writing poetry, sure. of course. Um, and then I wrote a play um, in my senior year of college and staged a reading of it. Mm-hmm. And and then when I got out of college, I was, you know, I was really lost. I had no idea what to do. I didn't know. I had no skills. I walked into a temp agency. I couldn't type. I was wearing Birkenstocks. I looked ridiculous, <laughs> you know. What had you studied in college? Uh I studied Russian literature. Oh, you haven't you had no skills. I had no skills. <laughs> and so what did I do? I ended up applying to graduate school in Russian literature because, you know, I was depressed and I didn't know what I was capable of doing and my parents said, you know, you were happy when you were in school reading books and writing papers. Of Why course. don't you go back to school? <laughs> and I thought, well, all right, I'll do that cuz I can't I can't figure it out. And so oh. I went to Berkeley actually and I started a PhD program in Russian literature. Oh my god. As you do. Right. You know. And then, you well, know. And, and assuming, I assume, you know, that you'd be writing articles and teaching, right? Yes. You saw this was going to be your life. Yes, that was going to be my life. I was going to be an academic. And I was excited about the teaching, but I, I felt like my world got really small mm-hmm. um, being in, in this department. And, and you have to specialize, right? You can't just say Russian literature. You have to actually pick a very specific field of inquiry mm. to focus on. And I picked early 20th century Russian poetry. You know, and then my world shrunk again. And, yeah. um, you know, was and there anyone else in the world? There were a few people. I spoke at a conference at Berkeley about, you know, women writers in, in Russian literature because I was focused on this one female poet. And, you know, I thought these 60 people in this room are my community for yeah. the rest of my career. And of these 60 people, maybe three of them are actually interested in what I'm talking about. So, oh, no. you know, and look, no, no, no offense against any academics because I, I actually loved being part of that. And I, I really, um, 
admire academics, and I miss being part of a university world. Um, it was really, really fantastic. Mm -hmm. But I just, um, I, I found that I, um, I lost my, um, I lost my excitement about it quickly, mm -hmm. and I needed to segue into something else. So then, how did? What came next? Yeah, well, let's see. Before I went to Berkeley, I made a short film at New York Film Academy. I was I was in the, one of the early classes at New York Film Academy. Oh, it had just come along, yeah. and it was an incredible place where they taught, did this silent filmmaking boot camp where you know they put it an Arri MOS camera in your hand the first day. You learn how to load it. You start shooting hmm. it. You learn how to expose it. Why? Well, let me interrupt right. for a second. Why, uh, why was that even something you were interested in? Like, how did you even enroll in that? Yeah. I was working a really crazy job in Midtown. Um, I was working basically, well, I probably shouldn't say this, but I was working for the Russian mafia. What? <laughs> I was. I was working for this Russian import-export firm. And um, God. doing crazy things <laughs> and nervous that the IRS was going to storm the door any day. Sure. And um, uh, it was very wild. And I oh applied to New York Film Academy on a whim. I, I sold my car and my computer to afford it and um, moved home. And I went. And I, I just had this... Um, instinct that I wanted, it, you know, the ad itself had like somebody standing behind a camera and I just felt like I want that to be me. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. That's I can't funny. tell you. Yeah. Did you have, were you a movie kid? I always loved movies mm -hmm. and I really loved theater. I, I grew mm -hmm. up in New York City and I went to the theater a lot and I actually wanted to be an actor when I was really little and I, I studied acting and I did summer stock theater and oh, wow. went to Williamstown Theater Festival and, you know, I, I Somehow in my senior year of high school, I decided I was never going to have a career as an actor, so I should get out get out beforehand. That's more realistic than any 18-year-old yeah. has ever been. I know. It was wildly realistic. <laughs> I don't know where that came Too from. Too realistic, except, maybe. Well, actually, I do know where it came from. I was at Williamstown Theater Festival the summer before that year, and I auditioned maybe a dozen times for different things, and I was cast in nothing. Oh. So I left that summer really having, you know, been smacked down, and I felt that it was better to succeed at something else than fail at the thing I... <laughs> I was doing. <laughs> and so I, you know, I got out. I got out. Oh, my out. God. What was, were there, like, formative shows that you saw when you were growing up that, oh, yeah. that made you want to be in the theater? Oh, yeah. I saw Dustin Hoffman do Death of a Salesman. I was mm. in, like, the fifth row. Mm. I saw Jessica Tandy and Amer Amanda Plummer do Glass Menagerie. I saw... Every musical, you know, La Caja Fall, Cats, Les Mis. I mean, I, I saw everything because we lived there and my parents were crazy about theater hmm. and we went regularly. I saw everything. That's really cool. Um, even stuff that was probably, you know, really inappropriate for me to be seeing as a kid. I saw it all. That's funny. I mean, it feels like something like that would inform you as a writer in a different way to these people who, you know, grew up watching E.T. Right. No, I actually grew up more watching theater than film, I would say. How do you think that has affected the kind of work you do? Well, you know, I remember having an argument. I was dating a guy in high school whose sister was a film major um, in college at the time, and I remember having an argument with her about which was more intimate, film or theater. And I was very 
adamant that theater was more intimate because it was live and because you're in the room with the actors. Mm -hmm. And she was passionate that film was more intimate because the camera can go so much closer. You know what I mean? And it can can witness moments that are more um, private and more truthful than, you know, a theater is is inherently this proscenium setup where... Mm -hmm. You know, actors have to project in order to be heard. And I ended up realizing years later she was right and I was wrong. That theater is, I mean, that film is way more intimate Mm -hmm. than theater. And um, I actually love that about film, um, that you can be in these moments that are so private and Mm -hmm. personal and you've got a front row seat. And it it, it makes the experience so visceral that you're really under the skin of, of of another human being experiencing what they're experiencing if it's well done and you're feeling all the things they're feeling and you can it's almost like you have an x-ray into their soul Mm -hmm. that you can experience something that you know you will never get to experience yourself that's really that's an interesting take on on both media that it feels almost as if film is a first person narration it is and theater is by its nature and an omniscient narrator. Absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and worth investigating. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you went into this, uh, into, to, took this film program. You I made did. a short film. I made a short film that I later used to apply to film school. Okay. Um, and it was a, you know, no dialogue. It mm-hmm. was a silent film I shot on reversal that um, I had, uh, you know, that was in Russian and English. It was, it was probably the, one of the worst films ever made. <laughs> Congratulations. But, but thank you. But um, but somehow uh, NYU saw it and, and they took a chance on me. Um, and that was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I applied to, you know, only a couple of film schools, but I was really excited about NYU. Mm-hmm. And well, especially at the time, NYU was like, it had the best reputation, right. even more than these the California schools, I feel yeah. like. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, of course, always in, in competition with the L.A. Right. schools. The one thing I will say for anybody who's thinking about film school is there is an advantage to going to film school in L.A. Mm-hmm. because you meet people who are going to be in the business, whether it's people you're interning for, people who are teaching, people who are your colleagues, that are going to be in the, the real business of filmmaking at some point. Whereas in New York, um, it's really more of um, of an auteur school, mm-hmm. NYU, and so the references are more, you know, '60s French New Wave and you know New York indie film filmmakers, mm-hmm. um, and they're fabulous references. Um, but actually, when I went back to NYU to teach, I made a real point of bringing in Hollywood movies to, mm. to show my students, because I think the reality is, especially now. Those are the movies that are going to get made. If you really sure. want to work in the business, you, you need to be fluent in those movies. You know, you can't walk into a meeting in Hollywood and say Godard and expect the person you're sitting <laughs> up opposite from to know what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, hopefully they do, but maybe they don't. Yeah, especially in the last 20 years or so. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but this must have been, for you, just a crash course because the, it was it had to just be the practical side it if was nothing else. you're talking about new york film again yeah. it was absolutely practical although we did we did see some film clips but it was it was limited on on the aesthetics of filmmaking and it was much more about how, how the nuts and bolts of of making a movie mm-hmm. um and it was really fun i bet yeah and and like you said you had to learn all the roles right right um that's really interesting so at what point did 
Did you take screenwriting classes? Was that part of the experience? Um, at NYU? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, NYU, you take, you, they're all required classes, right. right? So you have a directing workshop, a screenwriting workshop, editing. Um, I think we had cinematography and we have an aesthetics class. Again, the curriculum has probably changed, so this is right. a little bit out of date. But um, uh, they were all required and... Um, and all of it was geared toward whatever film you were making that year or semester. Okay. So um, at the time, we made a silent film in the first semester. We made a documentary on film, <laughs> but with dialogue in the second semester. And then the second year, we made a short film, and then you have your thesis. Mm-hmm. So you make four films while you're there, and you're crewing on everybody else's films. So you learn. I was actually really good at recording sound on set. That was like a thing that I, I enjoyed. <laughs> and so I ended up doing sound recording on a lot of films and also um, editing on a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of films. And everybody sort of found their niche of what mm-hmm. they were good at. So when did you start writing? <laughs> I mean, I I had been writing um, Mm -hmm. for years, but... um, Well, you said you had a play early on, and obviously you had to create stories for each of these assignments and these films. For the short films we were writing. Yeah. Um, But I was so nervous about going to film school that the summer before NYU, I decided to adapt Crime and Punishment as a feature. Um, Did you do it in Russian? No, thank God. I mean, no. But I, I you know, I wrote, I wrote a modern adaptation of Crime and Punishment set in Coney Island. Um, and um, and it was, again, probably terrible. But I, I felt the need to kind of put myself through the, those hmm. paces before I started film school. And then I wrote a feature coming out of film school that um, helped me get an agent um, and a uh, there was a producer who wanted to make it, and so you know it never got made. But I ended up taking a lot of meetings in Hollywood with agents and actors, and how interesting! Whatnot. How how did that script even get to agencies? Well, um, my short film—I uh, I did a short thesis film that actually did very well and and um, won a big award at NYU. Mm-hmm. And one of the judges was a producer. And she asked me if I had anything, and I had this script I had been working on, and she read it, and she wanted to make it. Um, And she said, do you have an agent? Because I need to negotiate. And I didn't have an agent or a lawyer or anything. I didn't know what I was doing. And um, so she helped me get an agent so that she could negotiate a deal. (laughs) That's great. To option it for free, naturally. Right. Um, But still, there needed to be paperwork on it. And so she introduced me um, to... Um, the agent I eventually signed with at Endeavor, and um, I met with just a few agents and made a decision quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, that was I was off to the races, you know. That's really interesting. So this this script I imagine became a sort of calling card for a few years for you. It did. It did. Um, you know, within a year of of moving to LA. Um, I actually got speak, and so that I, you know, wow. I, I rewrote a script that they had at Showtime, and then we shot it, and we're at Sundance within six months. So wow. it all happened really fast. Yeah. Um, and that, like I said, that other indie movie that I wrote never got made. Right. But yes, I did send it around mm-hmm. as a writing sample. Right. Can can we talk about that sample for a minute? Because sure. Because it's come up on the podcast before that there's sure. often. A magic script, a thing that people right. respond to, and maybe it's your tenth, and maybe it's your first. Right? Um, was this that for you? Was no. this sort of a key for you? No, it was not. Why not? Um, 
the short film helped me really get a bunch of meetings and get out hmm. into Hollywood. What was the short film about? Um, it's called The Wormhole. Mm-hmm. And um, I shot it on 35, which was kind of unusual for a, a student film. Yeah. I had to lobby to shoot it on 35. And I had to, um, I came up with a scheme to get a camera and free film. Also, I got a grant from the Sloan Foundation because it was science-related content. So I managed to make that film, you know, I really hustled, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is a very big part of of making your own stuff, is hustling. Listen, it's a big part of not making your own stuff. That's true. That's true. It's a big part of life, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But somehow I, I cobbled together all of these free you know, mm-hmm. things. Um, I, I used short ends from Law and Order. I convinced, I don't know how I got to Law and Order, but I convinced them to give me their short ends. And That's so crazy. we would roll out every take. We would just roll out and have to reload every take. It made the cinematographer crazy. But that's what we did. And then we got a grant um, from Kodak for some film. And then we also bought all this expired film that was cheap. Sure. And we were nervous what it was going to look like, but we tested it and mm-hmm. you know made sure it would work. But it was expired film, so it was like half price. That's really funny. But that's what we did. So you cobbled um, together this really, thing. We really, literally cobbled together wow. this thing. And actually, the way we hustled the camera is pretty funny. We convinced NYU that we needed a 35-millimeter camera for a workshop. Okay. And so, <laughs> nice. so we rented a camera, but we did it through NYU yep. for a quote-unquote workshop that was really shooting my <laughs> thesis film. Yep. So well you know, done. yeah. So these are all ideas you you guys can run with, right? Um, hustle, trick hustle. people. Absolutely, lie, cheat, steal, whatever it takes. Um, and the, uh, for you know, it was a weird thing with this short film. It was um, it was a movie that was very much about loss. And I finished it. I was in the editing room when the Twin Towers went down. I was actually, um, you know, we were evacuated from NYU. We were walking up 6th Avenue Mm -hmm. with all these people covered with, you know, white cement dust and, you know, blood. And it was a very crazy time to be in New York. Yeah. But I was finishing this film that was about sort of irretrievable loss right at the time when the the country was dealing with this thing. So it was a strange um, confluence of of timing and a project that I had started before that happened, obviously. Was the the subject or the story personal to you? It was very personal. I mean, there's nothing autobiographical in the story. Mm -hmm. But um, I've always been interested in from a personal place, um, moments when like life turns on a dime, you mm-hmm. know, moments that are a dividing line between your life before and your life after. And um, for me, that was the suicide of a family member. Um, and, you know, life changed for not just for me, but for everyone in the family. And so, you know, that became the the sort of underlying um, inspiration for this film. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called The Wormhole, and it's about a kid who um, is looking for... He hears his grandmother lecturing in a a university class about wormholes, and he's looking for one to go back in time. And I thought, well, what's a reason a kid would need to go back in time? That it can't just be, you know, for fun, you know? And so um, it was to... His brother had been kidnapped. His little brother had been kidnapped on a beach Hmm. one day, and he wants to go back and rectify the situation. Hmm. So none of that is from my life. Hmm. I I didn't have a brother. There was no kidnapping. It's all (laughs) fictional, but it was about that that um, desire to change 
mm-hmm. what's past and what can't be changed. Sure. And, and the themes are honest and the emotions are honest. Right. You know, that, right. That's what makes it personal. Right. And how do you reconcile those feelings? You know, because obviously you can't. Sure. Um, and so that's really what it was. And, and it, 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 um, it sort of worked. It just, it hit people in a certain way. Hmm. And, um, there was a producer at Universal who really was touched by it and, and met with me in New York. And he said, I have a discretionary fund. I had no idea what that meant. He said, I want to hire you to write something. I said, great. He said, do you have any ideas? And I had nothing. That's hilarious. And so I, on the fly, I said, well, there's this Russian novella that I love that I've been thinking about adapting, which was true, but I had, I I mean, it was really by the seat of my pants. And he said, well, I could look into the rights. And I said, well, it's public domain, so you don't have to look into the rights. And he walked down the block to Rizzoli and picked up the book. It was First Love by Turgenev. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a week later, I had a deal at Universal and, you know, I I was writing that for a producer. Yeah, it was it was one of those, you know, magic moments that never happens to anyone. And I except that it does, except that every now and then it does. I mean, and then, of course, the reality hits you that you don't know how to do what you're You've just been hired to Well, do. that's what I was curious about, because yeah. now you're thrown in and the thrown stakes are higher. First. Yeah, the stakes were very high. So what do you do? Um, I learned how to write a screenplay <laughs> on the fly, and, and the truth is I got fired from that job mm-hmm. because I, I really didn't know what I was doing, and that became pretty clear. How how was it clear to anyone else? I mean, it's one thing for you to know you, right. you're not comfortable and don't right. know what you're doing. Well, I turned it in. I mean, I finished it on time. Mm-hmm. I, I made it as good as I could, and mm-hmm. I turned it in. But it was very much a first script by a new writer. And what, what does that mean to people? That's something we don't act, often talk about. But there is something about, you know, a first script by a new writer right. has certain tells. Yes, it does. Um, Let's see. I'm trying to think, because I've read a lot of writing samples. I've been sort of on the hiring side of Mm -hmm. of some things. And, um, you know, one of the things I would say is um, there is a... I'm going to go back to the word rigor. There's a rigor in storytelling of a professional screenplay where you're cutting out all the boring stuff. You know what I mean? You're, 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 You're skipping all of the uh, what we used to call shoe leather, you know, on Horror Story, mm-hmm. um, where people are getting from point A to point B. And it's like, no, just come into the scene at the most crucial point. Mm-hmm. You don't have to hear the entire meeting. You need to hear the tail end of the meeting when the big things get said. So how do you ellipse all of the boring stuff of life? And what I see a lot in first scripts or early scripts is that all that boring stuff is still in there because they can't figure out how to cut around it, Mm -hmm. how to ellipse it. And um, that's something you learn with experience. That's not something I think you can even um, teach because Mm -hmm. it's an instinct and it comes from editing and it comes from writing a lot and reading a lot of scripts that you find, oh, I don't actually need to cover that. I can come to the result of that event instead of seeing the event. Right. Um, it's a great thing to make new writers aware of. Yeah. Though. I, I'm glad it came up. Yeah. Um, so so what was it like getting fired from that assignment? Well, I didn't exactly get fired. That's a little bit overdramatic. Okay. What happened was um, I had two drafts that I was, you know, contracted to write. Mm-hmm. And when it came to the second draft... 
they said, we're going to hire a new writer to write the second draft, but you stay on as the director and you'll oversee the writer. And the writer happened to be David Gordon Green. So I became friends with him and we worked together on this script. So I got something really amazing out of it, which I got to work with somebody incredibly talented. Um, Of course, the the movie never went anywhere. But, um, you know, it's been, you know, that that's um, the truth is it was it was a great thing that happened to me early in my career because it was very humbling. Mm hmm. And um, and I had had this big success with a short, so I maybe needed a little humbling. <laughs> so that it wasn't a bad thing. It was painful when it happened, of, of course. course. But um, but it was ultimately a really good thing, and I learned a lot from it. And I learned from David, and um, you know, formed a new friendship. Um, and I also learned something really critical, which is that that first draft you hand in, that's probably your eighth draft. That's mm-hmm. not your first out of the, you know, hit, fade out, send. No, you don't do that. And so I just finished my quote unquote first draft of a feature that I'm about to turn in Mm -hmm. to Fox 2000. Well, I'm having a lot of people read that and weigh in and give me notes and I'm, I'm fixing it. Right. And I'm getting it as close to the finish line for the quote unquote first draft as I can. Like Mm -hmm. anything I can think to improve, I'm doing before I turn it in because you don't want to turn in a literal first draft to anyone. Yeah, that's that's again, that's great advice. Yeah. Um, let's um, we we actually have to start to wrap up a little bit, but okay. um, let's talk about the stuff that you're you're working on now. Sure. Um, you said you're pitching a show, right? How's that going? Well, <laughs> actually, I, I can't. You know what? That that one we should scratch. Can off you talk be- about pitching sure, in general? I can talk though? about pitching. Yeah. Do you, are you any good at pitching? I feel like you're probably good at it. I think I'm pretty good at pitching, but I was not always good at pitching. No? I, I do think it's something that uh, gets better with time mm-hmm. and with experience. I'm much more calm now about pinch, pitching than I was. And um, I'll tell you a funny story real quick, which is that um, when I was eight months pregnant with my daughter, it's my second child, mm-hmm. um, I was completely flat broke. I was... Um, you know, ready to leave the business. And I had a pitch for a pilot that I was taking out and I was so desperate. I just felt I have to sell this thing or else I'm out of the business. I mean, I was that desperate. And I went to a hypnotist (laughs) and I said to him, I have to like get this ball in the hoop. Help Mm -hmm. me. Right. And I told him (laughs) the situation and he basically said, and he was right, you cannot go in with that attitude because they will smell that out a mile away, your desperation, and it will be such a turnoff. You have to go in with the opposite attitude, which is you would be lucky to have my show. You would be lucky to have me writing it. And this is why you're going to want it. You can't frame it in terms of what your needs are because right. no, this isn't a charity business. No one's, no one's giving you a paycheck so that you can feed your family. This is a business where everyone's looking to win and everyone's looking to profit. So he helped me reframe the way I thought about the whole process. And um, I've actually maintained that, you know. So I have to go in thinking, how is this going to benefit them? Not how is it going to benefit me? That's pretty obvious, you know, how it benefits me. That's a great way to look at it. Um, What is your pitching style? Um, are you are you heavily scripted? I you know what I am both. I okay. script it down to the 
like pauses jokes and really? everything. Yes, it's fully scripted, but then I really try to memorize it so that I don't have to look at any pages. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm pretty good now about being ready when I walk in to not look down. Um, I also bring in visuals if they're relevant. Mm-hmm. So um, the last couple things I've pitched um, have been pretty complicated, heavy cast of characters. Um, so I will make a board with faces, you know, and family mm-hmm. trees so that I can explain the different dynamics and relationships. And it just makes it easier for them to listen when there's, you know, you're making, they don't have to say, well, which, who's that again? And how is he related to the family? So if there's something visual that's really helpful in listening, I'll make that. I would imagine that helps the it, pitch too. I mean, it gives you a structure and it sort of keeps yes. you tethered to something. Yes, it does. And I, and I always try to find a cool way into the pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a pitch, um, let's see, a couple years ago about, it was a thriller and I did it all in the second person, you. I was saying, you know, you did this, you did that, you had no idea it was going to lead to this. I had never done that before, but I put them completely in the in the driver's seat, and that was kind of fun. That's interesting. I mean, that could be. It's such a stagey technique. Oh yeah, it was totally know, theatrical. That it could go the wrong way. Right. It could take them it right could. out of it. I managed to sell it, so I That's think it amazing. went okay. Yeah, but really cool. but it was uh, it was a it was a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's that's a big part of it. I mean, it's in addition to coming in and saying this can help you. How can this help you? It's, I know what I'm talking about. Right. And this is the best way to present that. Right. And actually a friend of mine, um, Andrew Marlowe, who created Mm -hmm. Castle and wrote Air Force One, I remember he he always uses the word campfire as a verb. He said, you need to campfire your pitch. And I always think about that because, you know, around a campfire, there's a kind of, um, you you want the person to lean in, right? And you're telling the story in the most dynamic way you can. And um, so whatever way that is, um, is really generated by the material. Um, so I, I sort of, I think about that a lot when I'm, when I'm coming up with a pitch. Yeah. I think that's, that's, again, that's great advice. I mean, it's, it's storytelling. It is storytelling. this sort of basic pure form, but that's, what's going to sell it for you. Right. Um, let's, uh, uh, take a minute too, to talk about dirty dancing. Yeah. I know people want to hear about it. Okay. How did you even get involved with this? Why right. were you the guy? Why was I the guy? Talking yeah. to you, it seems like you're the guy. I'm totally the guy. <laughs> you well, should have been. Well, the funniest part is the the producer. It was like halfway through us writing the script, she said, "Your baby," which is really funny <laughs> because I was that age. I mean, now I'm you know giving away my age, but when that movie came out, I was that Jewish girl from the East Coast. You mm-hmm. know, I. My dad was a doctor, just like her dad, you know, and it was like, I was that girl, absolutely. So um, that's not really why I'm the right person, but it was just sort of a funny revelation along the way. <laughs> and it certainly doesn't hurt. Yeah. It's the same producer as Nerve. Okay. And the same studio, in fact. So mm-hmm. I already had that um, underway. And initially it was, we're going to take this out of feature development and write it for TV. And she said, I just need a few extra scenes to build it out. And then it became, I needed to be a musical. And so it really was starting over. Mm -hmm. And um, I worked really closely with Adam Anders, who is the music producer Mm -hmm. on it, who had done all the music for Glee. And he and I spotted the entire story and came up with what were the musical numbers and where. And a lot of the musical numbers come from the soundtrack of the movie, but some of them are period songs from that from that era that are performed by various characters. Um, so 
I just saw a cut for the first time, and it's it's. I'm really proud of it. That's it's, great. It's pretty. It, to me, it's it's a good marriage of. Um, an homage to the original mm-hmm. and and it honors what the original was but it also sort of expands on it a little bit mm-hmm. um without without feeling too jarring we wanted to give a bigger story to the parents hmm. and we wanted to give a bigger story to the sister mm-hmm. and so those stories feel like they're of a piece with what the original was that's great yeah. is there a way you know it, with everybody remaking everything and uh, new versions of all these things I feel like the best you can do is have a, a new point of view on it, right? Right. Uh, were you guys able to do that, and and what is that new point of view? Right. Um, I wouldn't say we had a new point of view on it because we actually, you know, Dirty Dancing has been remade in different forms mm-hmm. a couple of times, and I, I think in some ways it's kind of a sacred cow. You know, hmm. you, you, it's a movie that people are up in arms that is even being remade because you don't want to mess with something that has that kind of like people think of that movie as perfect and even though it's not totally perfect there's some silly things in the plot and all that but it works you know mm-hmm. it's a movie Absolutely. that end to end just works right so you know it's something that you don't want to mess with too much but one of the things we talked about was um that it was a time of upheaval and change it was it was you know right before kennedy was shot it was, you know, right in the beginnings, you know, of the civil rights movement. The women's movement was, you know, was just sort of percolating mm-hmm. and um, gay rights and all of these these sort of ideas. And we wanted to find a way to work some of those things into the story in an organic way without hijacking the story. Sure. We wanted to bring them a little bit more to the foreground than mm-hmm. they were in the original. So those were the additional stories that tapped into some of those um, ideas. That's great. I mean, that contextualizing right. is, is, is exactly that new angle that I'm right. talking about. I mean, it, it gives you something a little different, gives you something a little more, and right. like you say, still true to sort of the material. The, the end of innocence for the country, mm-hmm. in a way, is how people talk about, you know, right before Kennedy was shot. Yeah. and. Um, and, and, and it's good that we lost our innocence because there were a lot of old ideas that needed to change. Sure. That's very interesting. Well, I, I look forward to watching it. All right. Thanks. Uh, we end as we always do. What are you watching on television? What oh. are you enjoying? Uh, also, have you seen any theater lately? I have seen theater Anything lately. Anything great? Well, Hamilton, of course. I mean, I what a it. cliche. I'm You've never heard of it, right? Um, Hamilton was amazing. And um, the reason I got the privilege of seeing it is because we had the choreographer of Hamilton was the choreographer on Dirty Dancing. Oh, so I had a, a little bit of an inside nice. connection. I think everyone who has seen it has. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good someone. luck getting tickets. Um, <laughs> and then the other play I saw was The Humans recently. Which I heard is great. Which is amazing. Yeah. And um, I just saw that recently in New York. So that was it's a very depressing play, mm-hmm. but really well done. Um, and then in terms of TV, um, I tend to watch a lot of comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm up to date. I love Veep. I love Silicon Valley. I love Girls. Um, I don't watch that much on network TV, which I probably shouldn't be saying out loud. But <laughs> No, nobody um, does. Don't worry about it. Yeah. This is the 280th podcast. Two network shows have ever exactly. been mentioned. Well, The Good Wife is probably one sure, of them. The Good absolutely. Wife is really good, um, <laughs> although I, I am not up to date on it, but I thought it was pretty amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 